you can uh, pray for me. I have somewhat of a little cold here, so if I take a drink of water, you will understand, correct? Uh, it's good to see everybody today. I've uh, been thinking on this passage a lot this week, and uh, looking forward to sharing with you some of the glorious truths revealed in this passage. How many of you have heard a sermon preached on this before? Raise your hand on the widow's might. Okay, the widow's mites. We're going to cover today this well-known passage in the Bible. This passage has been discussed a lot recently because of a new interpretation that has arisen. For thousands of years, there have been several variations of one main interpretation to this passage. The main interpretation is Jesus used this setting to commend this poor widow's total sacrificial commitment in her giving of her last two copper coins. In other words, Jesus was saying, uh, this lady did right. She gave all that she had. Uh, The newer interpretation is different, and uh, I confess the person that has done it, I love dearly and respect him greatly. Uh, But I confess, I, I I could only find one commentary that was even close to this secondary interpretation, and I just don't completely agree with it, uh, and I'll explain why as we go along. The second interpretation says this, Jesus was actually angry at the widow uh, for giving her last two coins, and it says this, that Jesus was angry over the false religious system that duped the lady into giving her last two coins. The idea is, is that You know, it was all about self-righteousness and religious work. So Jesus is not commending, uh, but in fact, he's very frustrated or angry. Not not sinning, but angry at the circumstance where she would give her last two coins. Now, I agree in context, Jesus was against this religious hypocrisy of the scribes. We just saw that, right? And, And judgment of this false religious system was on Jesus' mind. I would agree with that. But Jesus was also talking to his disciples, and he was calling them, his disciples, to be totally committed to him. And he's been saying that throughout Luke. He, he had been pounding this point of total commitment over and over, and it's been seen in Scripture over and over, right? So there's this track record of, throughout Scripture of God calling his people to be totally committed to him. After all... Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, that's pretty total commitment, isn't it? Isn't that what he's calling them? So, and, and a matter of fact, we just recently in our Bible reading that uh, we're reading through as a church, uh, case in point is Zarephath, uh, the widow of Zarephath. You know, Elijah calls and says, hey, I want, I want the last bit of food you have there. And he gave it to her. And... Then God fed her, but that was the last of her food, right? So God does call us often to a total sacrificial commitment. But the more I think about it and the more I've looked at the passage, I do think that there is kind of a rebuke and a commendation, both, in this. And by what he sees and what he says. So in some ways, I think this new interpretation is kind of 
alluded to some things that maybe have just been a given or taken for granted. But I think there's a compromise in here. I do think that he is contrasting both views. and The, the wicked, self-righteous, Phariseeism, and then he's also contrasting it with this lady that shows total commitment. So I land that the in this passage that Jesus was both rebuking the false religious hypocrisy of the scribes and he was also calling his disciples to be totally committed like this lady. So I think it's really both. I believe this passage shows a stark contrast between those who worship with hearts totally committed to God and those who worship a God of human approval and not honoring the one true God. I think that's the contrast. I think that's the point. Today we're going to get a glimpse in this passage into the Lord's observations on giving in the temple during his last week before his death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to see once again that Jesus desires total commitment, not fake religious works. We will also see Jesus' standard of faithfulness in giving is not the same as man's standard of giving. So I, I think you'll see as we go along what I'm getting at. But let's look at the setting a little bit of our passage. First, just recently, just before this passage, in Luke 20, verses 46, he rebukes the scribes. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So we saw last week that Jesus was rebuking religious hypocrisy, correct? And as you make your way back through the Gospel of Luke, you see other places. Jesus had rebuked the religious hypocrisy in the in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Remember, the guys walked by on the other side of the road? And Jesus had rebuked the Pharisees, saying this. In Luke 16, he says, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So yes, Jesus is rebuking religious hypocrisy. Jesus rebuked religious hypocrisy in Luke 18 through the story of the self-righteous Pharisee who prayed to himself. You remember? Oh, God, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that man over there where he prayed to himself, the tax collector. Jesus was rebuking religious hypocrisy. Jesus also rebuked the religious hypocrisy of buying and selling in the temple. As he entered the temple, he cleansed, cleansed it, right? We saw that just a couple weeks back in Luke 19. I guess a month or so ago. And then that other key theme of total commitment has been seen all the way through Luke, hasn't it? I mean, all the way back to Luke 9, where he tells them that, you know, you must, be, uh, you must want me and desire me more than all. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Or Luke 20, 42, in the passages just before this, he he was pointing to his authority, that he was God incarnate. So anytime that he claimed this lordship or um, his authority by cleansing the temple or any of these, he was saying, you need to be totally committed to me. 
So this idea of total commitment is not new either. He had revealed his sovereign authority by the events of the triumphal entry, right? Calling his disciples, get behind me, follow me, go where I say. He had commended those who left everything and followed him in, in Luke 18, 28. He had told the rich man to sell everything and give it to the poor and follow me. That's Jesus himself calling him to do that. So obviously, I don't think that Jesus is only rebuking religious hypocrisy because the context shows this over and over. In Luke 18, 17, you can look there. It says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. The idea is, is that a child totally embraces truth. That's what he's getting at. When, you know, you know how children are. We've, we've talked about this passage. They, you know, a parent tells them, you need to do this. And they go, yeah, sure. They're committed. And he had exhorted the people in Luke 16, 13. He said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other. Or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. So he's been saying this over and over, hasn't he? And then we look at this passage in Luke 14, 33. He literally says, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That looks just like the widow, doesn't it? This is the same theme over and over and over. So we see Jesus has called for total commitment. While at the same time, he has been rebuking the false religious works-based system that the Pharisees and scribes were promoting. Both of these truths are there. Both of these themes. And then finally, we saw that he is giving great warning of judgment to come for rejecting him. He said this over and over, hasn't he? In Luke 17, he talked about this. He said to his disciples, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him to, if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. So he's saying over and over. Here's another warning. He says in his story to the landowner he warned, But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. He's warning, isn't he? Judgment's coming if you reject me. Judgment's coming if you buy the lies of the Pharisees. Judgment's coming upon the Pharisees and the scribes. That's what we saw in this passage that was read, right? In Matthew, he gave these woes at this point, same point, of judgment that's coming. And then in that passage in Luke 20 verse 47, it ends with these words. These will receive greater condemnation. So again, these two interpretations are sometimes pitted against each other. You know, this idea that Jesus hated the religious fakeness, the religious hypocrisy, and... This total commitment of the widow. Well, I think the scene is perfect. It matches the two together perfectly. It shows both of those concepts right there. And we'll see it as we go through this passage. We see, again, there's three main themes that Luke has been revealed, revealing all the way through. 
Jesus despises religious hypocrisy. Everybody agrees? That's been shown. Second, Jesus is Lord and requires total commitment for his followers. Everybody agrees, right? That's what he said. And then finally, Jesus will judge those who reject him for their self-righteousness. You get it, right? This is what he said all the way through Luke. And then he comes to Luke 21, 1 to 4, and he looks up and he sees it. He sees all three of these. All three of these concepts are right there. So we come to these passage. Luke 21, 1 to 4 is one scene that illustrates all three of these themes. Jesus sees and knows the truth. Jesus is the judge. He will judge righteously. He sees into the hearts of people and he knows whether they're given for wrong reasons or given for good right reasons. He knows it all. He says, I'm the judge. Look at me. I can look in and see what's going on. It's, it's awesome. These were Jesus' final words of teaching to the disciples, folks, within the temple area. This is the last time he's on the temple mount. Three days later, two to three days later, he's going to die. He leaves the temple mount and begins to talk to the people, talk to only his disciples. This is concentrated discipleship right here. For the next 48 hours, he's going to give everything to them. He's going to give them John 13 to 17. All of that is there. Great teaching. And his final words as he leaves the temple mount are these words in Luke 21. 1 to 4. These are some profound words. Even Jesus' previous warning concerning the scribes was made to his disciples. We saw that, right, last week. Jesus now turns all of his attention to his disciples to tell them to beware, know what's coming, and this is what I want. That's what he's getting at. Jesus was only two days from dying on the cross And he begins to talk, and we'll see it in a little bit. Next week, we're going to start talking about a very, very complicated section of Scripture. We're going to be talking about the promises that he makes of coming judgment on Israel and the end times. Ooh, aren't y'all all looking forward to that? From 70 A.D. to 2000, he's going to give a full glimpse of all of that or he's going to give a quick preview of all the judgment that's going to happen from 70 AD all the way to 2,000 years ahead. But all of it is couched in this one little story. We see Jesus gives the contrast between self-righteousness and total commitment, ultimately calling his disciples to follow him to the cross and beyond. So today we'll look at the contrast of the false religious hypocrites with the totally committed widow. And then we'll draw some implications. Let's look. First, contrast. The religious hypocrites. Let's see. He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the treasury. And he, that is Jesus, said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put in the offering." But she, out of her poverty, put it all in all that she had to live on. Now, this first little phrase, it says, and he looked up. Man, this is interesting. 
You hear all kinds of things. It says Jesus looked up. Why looked up? What? It appears that he was looking down for him to look up, right? We got that. Was this because of the weariness of the moment? Was this because he had been praying until he looked up? Or was it just because he was looking down? And Luke gives some extra details to show what Jesus was looking up at. I'm really not sure. Maybe he just looked up (laughs) and saw it. And Luke's just giving some more details. But we do know this about Jesus. That this was a highly emotional week. This was a very difficult week. And this is the last time that he's going to be speaking to the people on the Temple Mount. We do know he was being attacked on every front, right? We also know that everywhere he looked... He had religious rulers sneering at him and plotting behind his back. And he's looking around. You know that these guys are over here. And you can know that they're mad at you. And they're plotting, hey, we got to get this guy. we got to destroy this guy. So this was a tough week. He knew full well what he was going to do in only a few days, bearing the weight of sin and judgment at the cross. Not to mention the overwhelming weight of seeing the city he loved so much, Jerusalem, as a whole, abandoning the God that it was supposed to point to. Jesus was in the temple. And the temple was supposed to be the place where people came to worship and adore Jesus. Instead, it had become the place of great anger and hatred at the very Messiah that the temple was supposed to be pointing to. The one that the temple mount was supposed to be screaming, look to God, look to God. The God man was there and they were rejecting him. Luke's account only gives one paragraph of the rebuke to the scribes. But as we read in Matthew 16, Jesus had given much more in Matthew's account. Jesus had railed for several paragraphs on the false religious system that the leaders were promoting. This is the other passage we read, like I said this morning. He was definitely tired and weary and spent. Jesus is described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief in Isaiah 53, right? This is what he was about. Well, you can see that this would have been probably the weariest moment in his career at his time there. Do you understand how much this would have been a hard time? Everybody hates him. Everybody wants him dead, especially the religious elites. All but a few disciples. He was bearing much grief over the wickedness of these people and what they had done with worship of Yahweh. His people hated him. And they were choosing a system that sought to justify themselves instead of humbly crying out to the only one who could save them, Jesus They were saying, no, I want it to be about fearing man and man's approval, not God. Do you think that he was weary? Do you think he was at the end? Absolutely. Needless to say, I think Luke is alluding to the fact that Jesus looks up and with one final stake to his heart, he sees the rich putting their gifts in the treasury. 
the way the system was set up, there were several, seven of them, metal boxes, huge metal boxes that were set up with a shofar and to look somewhat like a shofar. Now, if you know what a shofar is, it's something like a trumpet, okay, an ancient trumpet, okay? It was set up so that as you threw the money in the box, the metal box, it made out a loud sound. Do you understand? The boxes were made to announce the amount of the gift. Not only that, that often priests, especially at this time in Passover where you had lots of people, they would announce the size of the gift. Can you imagine it? All the seven boxes, you got these people saying, there's another 3,000 talents from such and such who traveled thousands of miles to get here. (laughs) What was this? Jesus was there to save them from their sin, and here was this giant announcement going over through the boxes. Can you imagine how this would have promoted a self-righteous system? The riches were often the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus had just rebuked. Now think about this. He just rebukes them, and what do they do? They go get their wad of cash, all their change, and they throw it in. Yeah, really? I'm a pretty righteous guy. Look. Unbelievable. In this system, this wicked system, the greatest glory went to the ones who gave the most, while the ones who gave the least were humiliated and, as mentioned before, probably chastised because it assumed that they had sin in their lives. That's why they were poor. That's what the right, the wicked system of works righteousness does. And by the way, that is the same wicked system that's promoted today by the health, wealth, and prosperity people. If you're poor, you're a loser. You're sinning. Give, and then maybe you'll have more. Some of the rich may have been saving all year for this moment. It's Passover. This is when most of the people were there. So what does he do? They save all year long just for the moment when they can dump it into the big metal box and everybody can see how righteous and how religious and how good they are. Oh, folks. 15,000 people minimum were in this area. In the women's court, where people were dumping money in. It was one of the most populated times of the year at Passover. People had traveled hundreds of miles and saved up money all year long just to give. So it was like one big, self exalting parade of people. Lined up behind the seven cases. Can you see it? Can't you visualize that? Here's Jesus saying, You have no hope. You have no hope. You need me. I am here. And they're saying, We're pretty good. Let me show you how good I am. Chuck the money in.
The more you gave, the bigger splash you would have had amongst the people. And the priests would do everything to promote the biggest givers. It reminds me so much of some of our telethons. Oh my goodness. You know, you look at these and we say, telethons are a good thing. We're saying it's getting money for, you know, good causes. But we spend hours listing out all the people that gave and got $50 from somebody in such and such city. Give their name and announce how much they gave. Or, or even worse, this person comes on stage and gives this gigantic check. Look at me. This is exactly what they were doing. In the name of religion and of following the one true God, do you see this would have been, this would have made Jesus miserable. Notice how Jesus evaluates the ones who were giving compared to the widows. He says, this widow has put in more than all of them. For they, all out of their surplus, put into the offering. What he says in effect is, look, it's both a slam on their religious hypocrites and an affirmation of the woman. Because what he says is, is all that that they've been dumping in there doesn't add up to the two mites that she put in there. So on one side of the equation, it's as if, look, this is a joke. This is religious hypocrisy at its worst. At the same time, he commends the lady. This is both a commendation and a condemnation in one sentence. When he says, truly, I say to you, this is the judge making pronouncement on what he sees. This is a amen, listen, pay close attention. I'm going to tell you my evaluation of this wicked system. And yet also this one lady that seems to have it right. It's a praise for the lady and a criticism for the religious hypocrisy. It's an affirmation and a denial an approval and a rejection, a support and a scolding, a confirmation and a denunciation, an endorsement and a public criticism. Jesus says in one simple pronouncement that all of their giving together is less, worth, more, is, is less than one woman's single gift. Now who's saying this? Who's speaking? Jesus. Notice he says, truly I say to you again, this is Jesus' way of saying, I'm the authoritative judge. This is the God-man saying, this is my evaluation of your works. Now think about what he's saying to these people. This is God's View of all your giving. Whew. This is a verdict, isn't it? What a verdict. This is the Lord himself saying, 
This is what I see and know about gifts. I think it's important to note that there are some details here that point to Jesus' omniscience, that he's all-knowing, even though he's also man. He could, that is Jesus, could make a pronouncement on the value of an offering. This says a lot about him, doesn't it? Because, see, God knows the heart of men. He knew what they were about as they were dumping this in. Now, I want you to think about this. If he looked up, then that means he knew that the rich that were pouring it in there had bad heart motives in what they were doing. Do you understand? By the way, just a warning. You don't know that. Did you hear me? Be careful of making those kind of pronouncements on other people that give. Okay? Jesus knew it because he's the God-man. And he was able to look. He was saying all of these rich were giving out of their excesses. But this one gave everything. How could he know this? How did he know that this was a poor widow lady, by the way? Doesn't say, it doesn't give us? How did he know? Well, because he's God-man. Was it her clothes? Was it her appearance? Was it the announcement of a priest? Or to a degree, he saw all of these people and he knew their hearts and he pronounced judgment on them and approval on this one lady. I tend to believe it is that he's the God-man revealing his full wisdom and understanding of the circumstances. He could have, dedu- could have deduced it by how much was spent and what was being given and what the people were saying. But as a whole, Jesus knew the hearts of men. Look at John chapter 2. This is an amazing passage. John 2. Look. It says this about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. It says, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What did he know about man and what's in it? Sickness, sin, wickedness he knew men it's interesting on jesus part he was not entrusting that's the same word that talks about belief that we should believe in him we should trust in him it's the same greek word but in this way jesus wasn't trusting man but he was requiring man to trust him why because he's trustworthy and we aren't he's god and we're not He's righteous and we're wicked. That's why he didn't entrust himself to man. This speaks to how wicked people are. All that they gave during this time, turn back over to Luke 21, was given with useless motives. That's that's frightening, isn't it? This is a sweeping condemnation of the people. Now I think we must be careful not to think We can make these kind of sweeping indictments after I just did one with the faith, health, and wealth movement. 
I think it's important to know that the, the fruit is obvious. And the message is obvious. Isn't it? Give so God will bless you with material things. Give and then maybe one day you'll have a Rolls Royce too. Are you kidding me? Make it about your actions and you will die. Make it about what you accomplish and you will spend eternity in hell. Do you understand that? The rich were most likely some of the scribes like I mentioned. Notice Mark's account says, and many of the rich were putting in large sums. The ones who were giving huge amounts. This is shocking. The ones that Jesus had just rebuked for religious hypocrisy are probably the ones that were giving the biggest amounts. Think about what Jesus was saying about these people. Their great gifts put all together are worth less than this poor woman who gave two mites. This speaks to God's evaluation of religious gifts done with wrong motives. Here's what God thinks. You ready? Of religious gifts given with wrong motives. You ready? Useless. Worthless. You can give a whole bunch. A whole bunch. And it be useless. You know, I often get this asked from the college group. Things like, you know, isn't it good to give to the poor? You know, people that are not believers, they give to the poor. They give all this money. Or they give it to some religious thing. Isn't that good? If it's doing something good? We just got Jesus' evaluation if they're doing it with wrong motives. Useless. That's a scary thought, isn't it? As our country becomes more and more secularized, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to see that they're going to see through this. They're going to say, hey, we're going to stop giving. Listen, Jesus gives a hint into why their gifts are useless by talking about the abundance and how it means nothing. You know, you really need to illustrate this. Listen, a millionaire who gives $100,000, it still has $900,000 to live on. Do you understand $900,000 to live on? If you make a million dollars a year and you give $100,000 and you have $900,000, do you understand what that means? Doesn't cost you much, did it? How about a person that makes $100,000 a year who gives $10,000? They still have $90,000 to live on. How about a person that makes $40,000 a year and gives $4,000? You still got $36,000 to live on. You know, it really isn't that costly, is it? Look, if a person gives but then has more than enough to live on, that ain't much of a sacrifice, is it? That's his point. On top of this, the system itself was a place for self-righteousness to be on full display. And Jesus knew this. This is why Jesus had rebuked this kind of religious hypocrisy. Look over at Matthew 6. Man, this passage speaks to the same truth. Look at it, Matthew 6. Jesus is talking and he says this. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Ooh. You hear that? That's a warning. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that you may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is how you give. One of the reasons why we put a box over there. But again, instead of passing the plate. But again, if you make a point, that's a small opening. There is no difference. <sighs> Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. By the way, some of us are quote-unquote poor. We can fall into this same little trap. We can do it with our works. Well, I don't have much money to give, but I can sure serve. Why are you telling me this? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do you announce it? Well, I did this, and I did that, and I did this. What's the difference? Ladies and gentlemen, it is not about what I think of what you do. It has nothing to do with that. Worship is about God and His glory. And some of the greatest servants in this group are the ones that we don't know are serving. The one that spends an hour and a half on their knees begging God for our church. And nobody sees you because you're in the closet. Jesus said, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Put real simple, folks. The key is the motive of our hearts, not the amount of our gift. Now, the amount matters if our heart is focused on worship. But the way it's valued is calculated by the motive of the worshiper. The amount is calculated by the motive of your heart. It's interesting. Now again, none of it gets you one step closer to God. Not one dime you've ever given, ever given, one dime. Not, nothing that you have ever gotten that you've then turned around and given has gotten you a little bit more righteous in God's eyes so that he will accept you. Nothing, nothing you've done, nothing. Our, our works are as filthy rags. Now, if we love God and we give, but it costs us nothing, 
then we must ask the question of our hearts. Do we really value God above the comforts and possessions that we have? Have you ever hurt in your giving? Has it ever cost you something? Man, I had to give up my Starbucks last week. Wow, that was really painful. I actually had to make some coffee. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not also a call to make a vow of poverty, to somehow earn God's favor. It's just a call to examine your heart and ask, is God bigger and better than what you have? The irony of this is, if the rich were truly worshiping God, they would have noted that this poor widow was giving so little So she must have been in great need. Can you see it? You throw in all the money. She puts in two mites. And immediately all worshipers of God go, Whoa, there's a problem. My excess here can help her live for a long time. I find it so interesting that after Jesus finishes his work, on the cross, and raises from the dead. And after Pentecost, and the great spirit indwells, we see the church doing something that is not evident by the scribes in the religious system. And that is taking care of the widows. Isn't it interesting? Acts 6, right? These men are assigned and appointed to help the widows. And then the epistles talk about helping the widows. And this is pure and undefiled religion to visit the widows. Why? Because they were needy people, folks. And if you love God, you will love people. And if you know the love of God, after you understand what Christ gave, you're going to give. You're going to help. This is a ministry that arises to the top of the church's ministry. Helping the widows. Folks, we are a very young congregation. We need to take advantage of this youth. We need to make it our goal to minister to the widows that are in need. You know, we have some. And there's lots in this town. They're everywhere. I can see a ministry to help the elderly rise up from the youth and college students. Can you, could, can you see what I'm talking about? Some of you got amazing voices. And I know you say, well, why haven't we included you in a praise team or whatever? There's a place for you to sing. And they love it. It's all these nursing homes that are filled with people. And many of them are dying and going to hell. You realize you probably passed tons of them on the way here. This is how we worship. 
We have so much, don't we, folks? Not only the resources, we have time. Many of us have time. You say, I don't have time. Well, if you have time to play a couple of video games, you have time. I want to warn you, Grace Bible Church. We don't come to church only to get served from the feast of the Word of God. It's not the only reason why we come. We come to serve those who are in need. That is worship. We come to learn how to minister to others. Religious hypocrisy is often revealed by what we devote our lives to. I know it's not comfortable to minister to people who are different than you. I know people of different age groups don't always mesh. And I know that you have a young lady and a mom that has a bunch of kids and she can't get out of the house. She's watching these little kids work together, minister to each other. We had that sign up. I know, now I'm meddling. We had that sign up for cleaning the church. Man, you know, that 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 should be filled the first day it's hung. It really should. I'm not trying to say this for guilt. It's an opportunity to worship. It's a good opportunity for you to know that you don't come here just to get something. Religious hypocrisy makes it about just coming up and getting filling your heads up with knowledge. The scribes were the smartest, quote-unquote, Bible scholars of the day. And they were dead! We worship by serving the body of Christ. Jesus exposes this by that one phrase. Next we see the great contrast. Look at the lady, the real worshiper. He saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Look at the startling contrast, isn't it? Jump off the page at you. This is what the lady gave. See that little, those two little things on the top? Those are widow's mites. See the penny? You know what the size of the penny is. Those are widow's mites on the top. By God's grace, I got a couple when I was in Israel. Brenda has them if you want to see them afterwards. Where are you, babe? Oh, she's over there. Uh, see, yeah, you're like, there's not much on there. You look real close, you'll see it. 132 of those little mites up there was a day's wages. 132 of those, and she put two in. And that's all she had. This is like a couple of pennies today. <laughs> thinking about this. Can you imagine if we uh, went and cleaned out the box today, right there? Went and got it, and as we did, we uh, noticed that there was nothing in it but two pennies. (laughs) What would be the first thing that came to your mind, Mark, as you were counting up those two pennies? (laughs) It'd be like, 
this is devastating. We're in trouble. Two pennies. Oh my. Jesus' view of it is totally opposite. I guess it depends on the motive of the heart of the person that gave the two pennies. And whether it really cost them something in light of the fact that it was their last two pennies. That great joy this morning from my, my oldest son. And I think the Spirit's working in him. And I don't like to put this pressure on him, but this is an encouragement. He got $5 as a gift just recently, and he came in and said, Hey, I want to give this to my friend. Thank you. That's given from God. He doesn't have any other $5, and he wanted to give it to his friend. I didn't, couldn't get him a birthday present, so I just want to give him the $5. Praise God, right? I'll continue to pray for my children. I try to use good illustrations of my children, too, sometimes. They get beat on a little bit up here. Folks, Jesus' point here, and he points out she was a widow. This means Jesus knew that she had her husband had died. And to be a widow in Jesus' day could be very uh, a, a very poor condition. Jesus had, the Jews rather, had come up with a way to justify not caring for their mothers and fathers. You can read this back in Luke. You find out. Many times what they would do is they would abandon their mothers, even though they were widows after their father died, they would abandon them and say, hey, I can't help you out, Mom, with any money because my money is committed to God. Oh, travesty. That's what he says when he rebukes them for not keeping the commandment, honor your father and mother. This was one of these widows. She was very poor. In fact, it would be, the word literally means desperately poor. She had two mites left to her name. And we see Jesus says she gave more than all of the other people combined. Can you imagine? It's amazing, isn't it? Folks, at the same time, we all need to be getting ourselves buried in, and I do want to put a side note on here. Listen, if you have bills and you are putting your money in here and you're not paying your bills, don't do that. We don't want your money. We want you to pay your bills. Do you understand? However, however, if you're getting yourself buried by debt because you lack self-control and then put yourself in a position where you can have all your luxury items but you owe up to your eyeballs, there's a call for repentance in that. Do you understand that that's sin? Listen, we live in a society that has to have it now. Do we save? Do we get ourselves in debt up to our eyeballs? Then we say, oh, but Pastor Mike, I can't give anything to the church because i got to pay all my bills. Sell your cars. 
Get a bike. Ride the bus. Get rid of your $100 cell phones, smartphones. Kill the internet. Now, again, again, at first glance, you might say, man, Pastor Mike's being a legalist today. No, 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 no. This is for your good. Because you will be able to worship God and you won't be buried by debt. And you will be able to come to church and serve other people. It's a good thing. I got my, you're good at mine. God doesn't give these proverbs because he hates you. He gives them to you because he loves you. Instant gratification will kill you. Do you understand? We're not talking about that with this widow. She had nothing. Nothing. She gave two mites. Jesus says this woman gave more than them all combined because she gave out of her poverty and put in all that she had to live on. She was a fulfillment of total commitment, wasn't she? Again, Jesus does not expressly say what her motives were, but because he says that what she gave was more than all the others had given, she, he points to the reality that he knows what's going on in her heart. Have you considered every penny and every second of every moment of your entire life and committed it to Christ? Let's think about this for a second. <laughs> you know, as I meditated on this call to total commitment, it was crushing for a moment. It should be crushing for all of you too. What do I mean by crushing? The weight of your sin to a degree should be there. Have you been disciplined with your time and finances? Have you worshipped God with your time and finances? Have you worshipped Him with all that you are, totally committed to Him? The answer to that is a resounding what? No. None. No, yeah, exactly. Exactly, Naomi. Naomi says no. No, we haven't. I don't, I don't ever remember getting to the place where I was like this widow. Where I gave my last two pennies. Does anybody in here have that kind of total commitment? Has ever done something like that, totally committed? I don't know about you folks. But I need a savior. Folks, this lady didn't give the biggest and best gift on the temple and in Jerusalem that week. I want you to listen closely. This is called the punchline. Make sure you pay attention. This is very important. The widow did not give the biggest gift in Jerusalem that week. The widow gave because she knew the one 
who would give the biggest gift. Here's the real punchline. Christ gave the biggest gift. That is the biggest gift. Ladies and gentlemen, your amount of total commitment pales in comparison to the Lord Jesus himself. And if you added up all of the things that you've ever accomplished by the Spirit even, in total commitment to God, it pales in comparison to what Christ did on the cross. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was the fulfillment of the rich young ruler. What? He had everything. He had all of it in glory. He is God Almighty. And he became man, took on flesh, and dwelt among us, and obeyed. And he obeyed perfectly. And he obeyed all the way to death, even death on a cross. And he is the great gift giver. Jesus was the poor widow par excellence. He was the good Samaritan par excellence. He was the rich young ruler par excellence. He's the best. And he gave it all to die for me and you. Knowing that truth, that my sins are paid for and his righteousness is credited to my account will make us all say, all that I have is yours. Take me. Use me for your glory. Oh, Lord, you are so good, so kind. Father, we do thank you for Christ. We thank you for his great sacrifice on our behalf. God, Yahweh, you are our salvation. You are our deliverance. You are our hope. You are all good. Our righteousness. Thank you, Father. Take our lives now and use them for you. Help us to be quick to repent and turn to you and remember that you are worthy of all obedience and all commitment. Use us, God, for your glory and your honor and your praise because you deserve it. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.